Welcome to episode two, season two of the Property 3.0 podcast, where in this season we are exploring AI and the future of the property industry. Will AI transform the property industry? I hope it might be able to, but I am learning about AI and sharing it on this podcast to test that theory. There's a few different subsections of AI, which include terms that you will start to hear thrown about a lot, things like neural networks, machine learning, and deep learning. So in the following few episodes, we're going to look at each of these to understand what they actually are and what they mean for AI and the real estate industry. Now, as a reminder, slash kind of disclaimer, I am not an AI expert. I am an AI learner. And in order to solidify my learnings, I am sharing them here. However, there may be some nuances I miss. Please forgive me if so. And if there's anything I get disastrously wrong, I will correct it in a following episode. But I do do quite a lot of research. So hopefully we're okay. Right, so on to machine learning. What actually is machine learning? Now, according to IBM, machine learning is a branch of artificial intelligence, AI, and computer science, which focuses on the use of data and algorithms to imitate the way that humans learn, gradually improving its accuracy. So in other words, machine learning aims to uncover what learning is and how we get machines to do it. The theory is if we could deploy machines to solve more tasks, if we can get them learning better. Now, this this goes back to the factory analogy I used in episode one. So traditional computing is like a factory where data is inputted and action happens to that data. And the action that happens is something that a computer engineer has told the computer to do. So that's how all computing has worked historically. And that's fine. It's great. (laughs) We've done lots of wonderful things with computing. But obviously, it's limited by whatever the human decides to input or even what the human can possibly imagine as an outcome and therefore what they ask the computer to do. And this is the key point that machine learning is trying to overcome. So by teaching computers to teach themselves, computers should be able to progress much more quickly. Now, when we look at machine learning, it's often separated into two distinct camps. The first being supervised learning and the second being unsupervised learning. So supervised learning is when humans train machines to do specific tasks with labeled data. So the classic example that people always use is in spam filters. And in a real simplification, a machine, a computer algorithm is given a load of emails, half of which are labeled as junk and half as non-junk. So a human has gone through all those emails and decided that these ones are junk, these ones are non-junk. The computer or the algorithm then looks for patterns that are consistent with the ones that say junk and then they do the same for the ones that say not junk. And 
once the computer is trained, so the computer will come to conclusions about what different things mean junk. And that's why, you know, you always get the things that go to junk are normally things which have words like finances or um, you have won or things like that. So those are the kind of the patterns that the computers have spotted and say right these are the things that seem to reappear with these ones that the human has told me are junk so anything else that has you know new iphone for you or spin to win that's that's one i get all the time um, the computer will say right that to me looks like junk that's going straight into the junk now nowadays they are pretty accurate um however there are still obviously occasions where they send emails to junk in error and that's because there'll be some pattern of words that the computer has picked up that it recognizes as junk as an example i once was in email exchanges with a company who had the name endurance in their um, <laughs> in their company name and I won't uh I'll leave it to your own imaginations why that term endurance meant that the emails that they were sending me a very legitimate company uh kept on going to my spam filter now when you click on the not junk button on an email that's been sent to your junk in accident by accident you are effectively teaching that computer that the particular combination of words and phrases are actually not junk. And so you're effectively giving it a little bit more labeled data to help teach itself, to help improve its accuracy. Now, that is why spam filters really are on the whole incredibly accurate today, because if you think the decades now of learning that they've gone through and the sheer volume of of emails, um, there's pretty good labeled data from every time someone says, yes, this is junk or marker spam or no, not spam, um, to really refine those filters. Now, interestingly, on a kind of similar note, did you know that any time you fill in one of those I am not a robot pop-ups, so the company is called ReCapture, when you're doing that, you're helping computers learn what a bus or a traffic light or a car looks like. You know those ones, they have the kind of three-by-three three grid, and it says, click on the traffic lights or click on the crosswalk or click on the truck. By doing that, you are creating labelled data and that creates valuable human verified data and originally so when recapture was launched it was actually used you may remember they used to have it when um, it would look more like a handwritten scrawl and you had to type the type the word or it had letters in funny really really distorted angles and you had to type as a human, like, how, what did you read those those letters as? And that was effectively used as a crowdsourcing technique to help digitize books. And interestingly, that company is now owned by Google. And so it's fair to assume that when we're filling in our little squares, identifying, saying, this is a car and this is a bus, 
we may well be helping Google with providing data that it can then use for its own self-driving car business to help them improve their computer vision in their cars. So that's just something interesting to think about. Every time you fill in one of those little grids, you actually might be improving the future of autonomous vehicle driving. It's kind of cool. But also, on the, on the other hand, won't go down that rabbit hole, but just quite an interesting way of how these massive companies really are leveraging <laughs> a lot of our, our behaviours. Because we, you know, it, it recaptures a really clever, interesting business because obviously it has a dual purpose because we are doing it, effect- we think we are doing it for our own good so that the website knows that we are an actual human you know if you're trying to buy concert tickets you click on one of those things so that someone can't just write a a computer script to buy up thousands and thousands of uh, concert tickets say for a really popular show you know it has to be an actual human so it has a dual purpose because obviously you have to be a human um, to click on it and they have their systems for for testing or believing that you are a human doing it but then also on the flip side you are creating an extra little source of labeled labeled data so really interesting stuff to think about now this example does show various problems first of all supervised learning machines really only get better with improved inputs from humans or more input from humans so kind of ironically it requires huge amounts of human resource and then there will obviously be errors due to human error in in the input and it's also reliant on the number of scenarios a human can label supervised learning relies on something that humans can say conclusively this is x or this is y Now, in contrast, the real power from AI comes from being able to make connections with things that us humans have not previously linked together. And that, my friends, brings us on to unsupervised learning. So with unsupervised learning, programmers teach computers to search for patterns and draw conclusions without being programmed to directly find those conclusions. The example that I really like from Andrew Eng, he gave this in one of the supervised learning courses that I did through Stanford Online, which is a Coursera course, which I think I've said before, but seriously recommend, check it out. So he uses Google News as an example. So if you go Google News, it's one of those tabs. When you search on Google, you can type something in, go to Google, Google News, and it will show you all of the news articles related to whatever you've typed in like all of the news articles across the whole web. So Google News has algorithms. And again, this word algorithms, I think people think like it sounds really intimidating. Just remember, like if you if you know how to use Excel and you can build a formula in Excel, an algorithm is literally just like a long, quite intense formula. But it's that's what it is. It's a formula. So Google News has an algorithm that clusters together news articles that appear to the algorithm to be similar. So the example that Andrew Eng uses is there was um, 
a news story a few years ago when twin panda bear cubs were born in a zoo in Tokyo. And so obviously that was a very rare, special, amazing that was a very rare, special, amazing thing. So a whole load of articles were written about it all across the world. And what the Google News algorithm does is it searches for unusual words and then clusters them together. So in those examples, you might have one headline that says, panda gives birth to twins in zoo. And another says, rare twin pandas born in zoo. And another says... Zoo in Japan welcomes panda twins. So it's all slightly different wordings, but it's all effectively saying, sharing exactly the same story. And so the algorithm notices that loads of articles that day have the words panda, zoo, twin, Japan or Tokyo. And it will cluster those articles that share those quite unusual words and it will make the assumption that all of those articles are about the same thing which obviously is kind of a fair assumption like what are the chances of on one day having two articles about two different scenarios with panda zoo japan tokyo twins it's quite a specific situation and the really important thing to notice here is that it's not like there's an individual sitting in the Google office in King's Cross saying, hey Google, please together, can you make a list of all the articles that have Panda Twin Zoo in the title? That is something that the algorithm does completely by itself and completely without any interaction from any human. So that is how, or one way that unsupervised learning works the computer itself clusters together patterns of data that it finds without being told what patterns to look for. Now, why is this unsupervised stuff so very exciting? In theory, unsupervised learning should lead computers to discover things without our existing human biases. So as an example, there is a general belief that AI should be able to help us progress massively within biology. You know, at the moment, we can't really deny that there are quite a lot of limitations to our understanding in biology. Obviously, all doctors have so much knowledge and do far more amazing daily work than I could ever hope to. But it doesn't change the fact that there are a lot of unknowns. So... You know, if you think about all those news articles, one week it's red wine gives you cancer, the next week it's red wine reduces cancer, the next week it's blueberries, the next week it's chocolate. And all the research that we currently do sits within our existing understanding of causes and effects. So what if we could just tell a computer, here's a bunch of different data about different patients with the same types of cancer. Please cluster together interesting patterns. There may well be scenarios where the computers make different conclusions than the ones that we do because we're always looking for solutions really within the same framework. So we're looking for one food type that causes cancer or one environmental factor that causes cancer. And we don't necessarily think about, uh, you know, just as an example, how, how those different things interact and how there might be sort of sub effects of those. So just as a, 
a particularly interesting example that I love when it comes to thinking about biology and AI was that in 2020, an antibiotic was developed with the help of AI that could kill previously antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So researchers at MIT taught a computer model to recognise antibiotic traits in 2,000 molecules. They then asked the computer to consider 61,000 other known molecules, so things that were used in different areas across the scientific universe but not necessarily particularly to do with antibiotics and the computer was asked to see if they could find any of those antibiotic traits within those 61,000 other molecules. They actually did find one molecule that was previously used as some kind of diabetes treatment and found that it actually could be effective for killing bacteria and I imagine classically the scientists who are working on diabetes treatments are not necessarily the same or particularly integrated with those who are working on antibiotics and so the by using computers and AI in this way, they could create these connections that might never, you know, they might well have happened through, you know, human-to-human interactions, but they also might well have not. And also think about just another side point, but how much time and money is spent on drug discovery, and obviously not to mention the testing on humans and animals, And this is a really interesting example of an existing approved molecule being found to be useful in completely different uh, circumstances. So bringing that back to buildings for, I think, maybe the first time in this particular podcast episode, if you took, say all of the right move data across the UK across the last 10 years. So if you think right move have this incredible data store of probably pretty much, I I don't know the numbers, but it would be the vast majority of houses that have been sold in the UK. They have access to a, a certain number of data, a certain amount of data about each of those sales. And so maybe if you laid that 10 year data across different population growths in different areas, employment growths, maybe change transport transport routes, maybe even satellite images of of greenery and you know, you could even look at like satellite images of how cars move around, how trucks move around, and you could start to get layer up some really interesting insights and maybe cluster some data as to why some places have gone up in value or rent and others haven't. Now, there is a major caveat to this point that AI can be unbiased and shown us connections that we hadn't previously considered. And that, of course, is that the data going into these models needs to be unbiased. And most of the data in our world replicates the existing biases that we have in our world. 
So a really simple, and this is a very blunt example, but just to kind of illustrate the point. If you gave a unsupervised machine learning algorithm data about pay and about gender, let's say in the UK today, and asked it to find clusters of data, it would certainly cluster data to say that women get paid less than men. And that's just, you know, it, it would kind of present that as as a factual thing. And if, you know, any researcher worth their salt would be able to spot that bias quickly and would either caveat those results with other bits of information. So, you know, all the things like how many hours of unpaid work, unpaid homework people, women tend to do compared to men, how many more women have part-time jobs. So it's a really blunt example but it helps to paint the picture that whilst AI will be able to spot patterns and find solutions that we never could, it may well also exacerbate existing biases that come from the data that it is trained on. If we as humans do not intervene to be sure that as much existing bias in the data is avoided or the algorithms are trained to understand that bias. So the conclusion there is that we should be able to find some really interesting, amazing conclusions of things that we just making connections that we had never even considered before by using AI. But we also just need to be really conscious that we're not using data, using bias data without making sure that the algorithms are trained to understand that bias and to account for it. And really interestingly, you know, people talk about um the fear of people losing their jobs. But quite an interesting example of this is is there's some suggestions that uh, careers such as accountants, auditors might be at quite a lot of risk when we start using more AI. But actually, there will probably be a new common role, which will be an AI bias auditor and it's quite likely that someone who is an auditor as we know it today would be have similar skills and would be very well suited to become an AI auditor an AI bias auditor so whilst there might be fewer jobs in accountancies there may well be more jobs in companies who are creating or using AI So going back to real estate, why is machine learning relevant for real estate? My hypothesis is that unsupervised learning is the real game changer for real estate. So supervised learning always needs humans to label data for for it to work, whereas unsupervised learning can work these things out for itself. And because in each building, Because each building is unique and there are infinite scenarios related to that building, physically things could go wrong in any element of the heating, electricals, plumbing, sewage, roof, cladding, (laughs) windows, foundations. Financially, there could be nuances in how and when the rent is paid. You know, even simple things like is the rent paid in arrears or in advance changes the income structure of a building rent freeze obviously can be structured in loads of different ways rent reviews can be calculated or lease renewals agreed and then 
on top of all of these differences, how a mortgage or loan is agreed. And so that's all before considering the multitude of legal restrictions, clauses in leases, rights of way, easements. And so with so many different variables, it is impossible, frankly, for a human to label all of that data that a computer might need to generate different scenarios we we have to make assumptions we use rule of thumbs rules of thumb and it's kind of one of the key reasons that in real estate we always say that valuation is an art not a science there's too many different variables at one point we have to balance all the facts with all the potential things that could go right and could go wrong so once computers have enough real estate data that they can analyze themselves they may well be able to find clusters of scenarios that we simply have not foreseen so there we have it there's a really quick overview on machine learning so machine learning is typically divided into the two camps of supervised learning and unsupervised learning. Supervised learning requires data that is labelled. That's typically things that have been labelled by us humans as, you know, this is a cat, this is a dog, <laughs> this is a traffic light, this is a sidewalk, uh, whatever it might be. And in contrast, unsupervised learning is where computers are trained to find groups of data, clusters of data, to find patterns within existing data. But they make the computers come to their own conclusions about what those patterns or groups might be. And there's not any one human sitting behind it saying, right, look for this, look for that. And it's this unsupervised learning that really brings the potentially game-changing impacts to us. However, and I will keep coming back to this point, we've got to be really careful about the data that we put into machines because whilst in theory an unsupervised machine should be able to find patterns that are completely unbiased and without our existing human assumptions or human frameworks, but if the data that is used holds biases within it, then the computers will inevitably come to results that also hold those biases within them. So, I mean, I think the main takeaway from this episode is if you are an auditor, then maybe your next career move should be to become an AI bias auditor. But other than that, <laughs> it's just something to be aware of and to be thinking about. And... Um, we look forward to seeing you next time on the Property 3.0 podcast, where we are exploring AI and the future of the real estate industry. Thanks for listening.